Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Since anthropogeny is not a normally common word, although many people are getting to know it, I hope, uh, it is the investigation of the origin of humans. And we do that writ large. And I think you'll see today that uh, what you're going to talk, we're talking about today is not the actual depth of origin of modern humans, but it does have implications for how that came about. Our complete card emission statement, which we've worked on, is to use all rational and ethical approaches to all verifiable facts uh, from all relevant disciplines, and you can tell as just from us there are a lot of relevant disciplines, to explore and explain the origins of the human phenomenon. We try to minimize complex organizational structures and hierarchies, we try as best we can, and to avoid unnecessary paperwork and bureaucracy. So we try to keep it simple. We try to keep it simple. I do want to thank some people because without them, uh, we wouldn't have CARTA and we wouldn't have um, these symposia that we've been able to carry on. Our main supporter is the Harold and Lila Mathers Foundation, and I would especially like to thank Dr. Mr. Jim Handelman, our exe- the executive director, and his wife Susan. I'd also like to thank Annette Merle Smith, who could not be with us today. Now, I will turn this over to the co-chair of today's symposium, Dr. Evan Eichler from the University of Washington. So it's a pleasure to welcome all of you here today. One of the special thanks to the speakers that have come um, from far and wide to make this symposium an event. We came up with this idea about, uh, about nine months ago. And I can tell you that it came from really a mixture of, of new data that was emerging, the enthusiasm from complete sequencing of genomes, and the fact that it's been almost 10 years since we've had a human genome reference, the ability to start to kind of peer into the diversity that exists in different continental groups, and to understand that really from a functional perspective is why we're all gathered here today. So this symposium is organized in two parts. The first half will be really kind of exploring uh, the nature of genetic diversity in different continental groups. And we're going to hear some excellent lectures uh, focusing on Africa, South America, and Europe, and what we've learned about human genetic diversity just in terms of neutral genetic diversity and its implications. We're also going to hear from Pascal Gagnon regarding kind of the, where we fit with respect to other ape species or other species related to humans. And I think he'll leave you with the impression that we're quite shallow genetically as a species. He'll also give us a little bit of a primer in terms of, uh, so everybody's on the same page in terms of what we mean when we, when we talk about genetic variation. The second half of this symposium will focus more on really the, some of the functional implications in terms of uh, brain development, in terms of immune response. And we'll end with some uh, discussion regarding the, the impact this might have in terms of society. Uh, our next speaker will be uh, Sarah Tishkoff at the University of Maryland, where she established herself as kind of the premier person studying African genetic diversity. In 2008, I believe, you moved on to uh, University of Pennsylvania, where she's a named professor in the Department of Biology. Welcome, Sarah. What I want to focus on today is actually the biodiversity of Africa. And you can see here that there's quite a bit of phenotypic morphological variation in Africa. There's a lot of linguistic variation, a lot of cultural variation as well. And I'm going to talk a bit about the genetic variation. But just to give you a little bit of background information, 
Now that we do have the whole genome sequence from humans and from our closest genetic relatives, the chimpanzees, we know that we're roughly 98.8% similar at the nucleotide to chimps. And we're quite more similar to each other. If we were to compare any two of our genomes at a particular region, we would differ on average about one out of every 500 or 1,000 nucleotides. There's also, we're now starting to recognize quite a bit of structural variation in the genome. So there could be pieces, little tiny pieces or big pieces that are copied. There can be duplications, there can be deletions, there can be shuffling around and inversions. And we're just barely at the beginning of learning about that. If we were to look at the relative amount of variation within and between populations, we know that 85% of the variation on, gen on average is within populations and only 15% between. And that's simply a reflection of our evolutionary history. It's thought that anatomically modern humans originated in Africa roughly 200,000 years ago. And then somewhere between 50 to 100,000 years ago, there was a migration of um, a small number of people. Some people have estimated it could have just been a few hundred people or so, who migrated out of Africa across the rest of the globe. And there were probably at least a couple of distinct migration events. It's thought there may have been a, one across southern, southeastern Asia into Australomelanesia as early as 40 to 60,000 years ago. Humans, uh, modern humans didn't make it into Europe till about 40,000 years ago, where they overlapped with Neanderthals for about 10,000 years or so. And then we have more recent migrations into the Americas within the past 30,000, 15 to 30,000 years in the Pacific and so on. But the one region <coughs> where populations have been evolving for the longest time is in Africa. So just to give you a little bit of background information, there are over 2,000 ethno-linguistic groups in Africa, and each speaking distinct languages. So that represents about 30% of the linguistic variation in the world. And these have been classified into four major language families. So in blue, we have the Afroasiatic speakers, mainly in northern and eastern Africa. That would include, for example, Semitic speakers who are also in the Middle East, and also Cushitic speakers from uh, East Africa. In red, we have Nilo-Saharan speaking people, mainly in Central and Eastern Africa. These would be, for example, mainly pastoralists like the Maasai. <clears throat> then we have um, people who speak niger kordofanian languages. One of the most common um, subfamilies or subgroups are the Bantu languages. And they're thought to have originated in Nigeria or Cameroon <clears throat> within the past 5,000 years. And then there was a rapid migration across Africa into other regions. And then the last language family is that which contains cliques, and I can't pronounce it unfortunately, can't do cliques. And that's been classified as Khoisan. And that would include the Southern African Bushmen, if you saw the gods must be crazy, they were featured in that and also two groups called the Hadza and the Sandawi who live in Tanzania. Now, despite the great importance of Africa for a number of reasons, including learning more about our human evolutionary history, it's been very underrepresented compared to other regions of the world. And there's a number of reasons for that, but part of it is just the challenge of trying to get DNA samples from that region. So for <clears throat> that reason, for the past 10 years or so, myself and my grad students and my postdocs have been doing field work in Africa, collecting uh, samples and other information in many different regions. 
And we usually go to very remote regions. We have to take all of our supplies with us. This is um, a group of hunter-gatherers called the Hadza who speak with a click language and reside in Tanzania. And we get very detailed ethnographic information and linguistic information going back to the level of grandparents. We also get information about phenotypic variation, normal variation that you might see in a population. Things like height and weight. I'm going to tell you about lactose tolerance. We've looked at taste perception. This was a particularly challenging test to do. We had to use whatever was available to put the bottles on. We typically get whole blood. And then another challenge is how you process this uh, these samples in a region that typically have no electricity. And in this case, we hooked up the centrifuge to the car battery. But in most cases, we're able to find clinics that have a uh, generator. And then we can hook in our centrifuge. We lice. We break the red cells. We spin down the white cells. And we can add a solution that stabilizes them at room temperature or African temperature. And then we can basically store them and bring them back with us. And it actually worked amazingly well. And so the first study I'm going to tell you about is one that we published this past year. It was a very large international collaborative effort. This was really very much a team effort. We looked at about 1,400 variable sites in the nuclear genome. So this is what's inherited from both mom and dad. We looked at over 3,000 Africans from 121 ethnic groups, roughly 100 African Americans from four regions in the U.S., and then we had about 1,500 non-African references that we compared these data to. This shows you the location of the African populations. They were very diverse, but you can see there's still a lot of gaps. We have a lot more work to do in that region. This is just a summary of the genetic diversity. So the higher the bar, the more genetic diversity there is. Here are all the Africans in orange. In blue are Middle Eastern and Europeans. Red are um, South Asians. And in uh, pink, East Asians. And then Oceanic and Native American populations. And like many studies have shown, Africans have by far the greatest genetic diversity. And that's consistent with that migration out of Africa of a small number of founding people. We can also construct a phylogenetic tree by looking at the genetic similarities between pairs of populations. You can't read anything from this tree, so don't even try. But the point is simply to show that, generally speaking, populations cluster by geographic region, by broad geographic region. So here's all the non-Africans. Here are all the Africans. East Africans, West African, and Central Africans southern Africans. There's one major exception here. Here are the San Bushmen down at the bottom in green, and right here are pygmies. Now, they're from Central Africa, but they're clustering very close to the San. And that's because, as I'll show you, I think they have a common ancestry. The next type of analysis I'm going to tell you about is something called structure analysis. And what we're doing is, this is composed of a series of lines. Each line represents a person for which we've genotyped them for all these different markers. And we're going to just forget their population labels. We don't care what they self-identify as. Just completely ignore that. And we're going to infer how many genetically distinct populations are there. And each is represented by a color. And each person can have mixed ancestry from different ancestral populations. 
And what we see outside of Africa is that most individuals cluster by major geographic region. Here's Europeans and Middle Eastern individuals in blue. Southern India in a sort of dark pink. East Asia, Oceania, and the Americas. All I want you to get from here is just look at all the colors in Africa. And that's indicating a very large amount of genetic variation in that region, not just within, but between populations as well. So when we repeated this analysis, and now let's just focus in on Africa, and I'll point out a couple of the trends. To make things simple, we've sort of pulled individuals and shown them as pie charts here based on the percentage ancestry they have. But one of the things we saw in orange are people who, have, who speak Niger-Kordofanian languages, and that includes the Bantu speakers. And we can see remnants of those migrations starting in West Africa, where they tend to be more homogeneous genetically. And then there was a migration to the East, a lot of admixture with the local groups, and another migration into the South, and again, admixture with the local groups. The purple represents Afro-Asiatic ancestry coming from Ethiopia. And we can see that there's been migration into Eastern Africa, people who speak this uh, Cushitic languages. In red, we have the Nilo-Saharan speakers. We think they originated in southern Sudan, and then they migrated several thousand years ago into East Africa. There was another migration, we think, from southern Sudan, giving rise to Chadic speakers who were sort of in this maroon color. We think that occurred about 7,000 years ago. We have some other distinct groups like the Fulani nomadic pastoralists across West Africa. And then we have some of the hunter-gatherer groups. And the North Africans show quite a bit of uh, Middle Eastern ancestry. So here are the Hadza click speakers. Here are the Sandawe. Here are the San and light green um, click speakers from Southern Africa. Here are the Pygmies from Central Africa in dark green. And one big surprise was to see how closely the Eastern Pygmies cluster with the Southern Bushmen, suggesting the possibility of shared common ancestry. And I haven't presented all the data here today, but what's kind of interesting, at least what's interesting to me, is that we have these four very diverse groups of hunter-gatherers. They live in completely different regions, except for these two live near each other. They look fairly different. Their languages are very diverse. Three speak with cliques. The pygmies lost their indigenous language. So we speculate perhaps they once spoke with the clique. But they're very, very linguistically divergent. So we think there may have been a common ancestral population from which they all diverged greater than 30,000 years ago. And then the last part of this part of my talk, I wanted to talk about two of the most um, admixed populations or those that show very mixed ancestry from different regions. Perhaps the most, that, most mixed ancestry we saw on a global le uh, level are the self-identified Cape-colored population from Cape Town in South Africa. And they have almost equal ancestry of this um, uh, Bushman, Southern Indian, this would probably be Indonesian ancestry, uh, European and Bantu. And that fits very well with what we know about their history in that region where there's a lot of intermixing between groups that came in. And here we have African Americans from four regions of the U.S. And you can see that they are predominantly this West African Niger-Kordofanian ancestry, as we would expect, based on what we know about the history of the slave trade. But there's quite a bit of variability in terms of European ancestry that can range from zero to greater than 50%. We also see small amounts of ancestry from some groups like the Fulani, 
who are found throughout West Africa. Uh, also, some of these Chadic speakers from uh, Chad and Northern Cameroon. Very small amounts from East Africa, suggesting that there may have reflected slave trade from Southeast Africa across the Cape and then to West Africa. And we saw very little um, Native American ancestry as well. All right, so I'm moving on to the second half of my talk now, where I'm going to talk about um, uh, evidence of adaptation, local adaptation in some of these African populations. And I'm showing just four of the populations we've studied who live in very different environments. They have very different diets, hunter-gatherer, agriculturalist, pastoralist. And they've been exposed to very different pathogens. So it's very likely that they've undergone local adaptation. And we're very interested in finding a genetic footprint of that adaptation, partly because I want to know how, why, and when people adapted. Also, they may play an important role in disease susceptibility of these regions. So the example I'm going to tell you about is the ability to drink milk as adults, known as either lactose tolerance or you could say lactase persistence. And that's because people who are able to digest milk as adults, they, have, they express the enzyme lactase fluorazine hydrolase, also known as lactase. It's expressed specifically from the small intestine, and it um, hydrolyzes or breaks down the complex sugar lactose found in milk into glucose and galactose, which is taken up through the bloodstream. Now, in most humans, and most mammals actually, this enzyme is shut down shortly after weaning, about age four to six. And as adults, they do not have an active form of the enzyme. And that means that they can't break down the sugar. It goes to the lower, to the colon, lower part of the gut, and can cause severe intestinal distress, including diarrhea. But it's long been known that there's a very strong correlation between the prevalence of lactase persistence or lactose tolerance and populations that have traditionally practiced dairying or um, cattle domestication. And so we see the highest prevalence in the very north of Europe and Finland and Sweden, but it's also quite common in a number of pastoralist groups from Africa. So in 2002, in a really elegant study, Lena Peltonen and her graduate student, Anata um, identified two regions that seemed to be associated with the ability to drink milk in Finnish populations. And what was pretty neat is that here's the gene for the enzyme lactase on chromosome 2. It was in another gene nearby, in a non-coding region. And it turns out this is the critical site right here, position minus 13910. People who have a T can can digest milk. And just on a very sad note, um, some of you may or may not know that Lena Peltonen passed away yesterday after a long struggle with cancer and um, at a relatively young age. And she was a real inspiration to myself. And if it wasn't for her prior work here, we wouldn't have been able to do the work that I'm about to show you. So when we sequenced that region, we did not see any of those variants. And um, so we decided we're going to go give a test and see who can drink milk. And, try to find those, the genetic variants associated. My student, Quayley Powell, is giving a test called a lactose tolerance test, where we give the sugar lactose. Everybody has to drink it at the same time. We take a baseline uh, measurement of glucose, just using like a diabetes monitor. And then every 20 minutes, take a finger prick and check the glucose levels. You look at the maximum rise in glucose, and that gives you an idea of people, according to the biomedical literature, are lactose tolerant. And I'm showing that percentages that are lactose tolerant in light blue. And we see the highest prevalence in the 
Beja population from the north of Sudan. These guys are pretty hardcore pastoralists. They drink liters of actually camel milk every day. But we see it's quite common throughout East Africa. When we resequenced this region, we found three novel variants that were significantly associated with the ability to drink milk in Africans. The most common one is at position minus 1410. People who have a C are able to digest milk as adults. And again, here's what I showed you about the prevalence of lactose tolerance. And in colors, here are the different genetic variants that we found, their prevalence. And we can see that generally they're very well correlated, except as we move into northern Sudan and northern Kenya and also southern Sudan, they're not very well correlated. So there has to be other genetic variants out there that we don't even know about at this point, And we're still looking for those. Now, one thing that was a bit of a mystery, going back here, is that this Hadza group of hunter-gatherers, according to our initial test, 50% could drink milk. Now, why in the world would that be? They're hunter-gatherers. One possibility is there's something wrong with the test. We had a small sample size. We're going to go back and retest. Secondly, maybe they had cattle in the past, and they no longer do. Or thirdly, maybe this enzyme, lactase fluorazine hydrolase, played a role in uh, digesting other types of carbohydrates, fluorazines, that are in the roots and the barks of different plants from that area. So that's something we're exploring. And then lastly, we wanted to see if this left a genetic footprint or a signature of selection. I'm going to just step you through how we can do this. Imagine this is a new mutation that arises that allows people to have an active form of the enzyme, uh, lactase. And I forgot to mention these mutations we found regulate the level of gene expression. So people who had that mutation have a higher level of gene expression. And they occur on a chromosome with some genetic variants in the background. If they increase the fitness of the people who have them, so they're more likely to have children and their children are more likely to have more children, it's going to increase in frequency, dragging with it the neighboring variation, and we call that a selective sweep. So we expect that people will be identical going quite some distance along the chromosome. But with time, recombination and mutation, we'll shuffle that up. And here's what we saw. It was pretty striking. In red are all the people who have two copies of the African lactose tolerance mutation. And we can see that they're identical going out as much as 3 million nucleotides along the chromosome. The average is about 2 million. And here are people who have two copies of the other genetic variant, the lactose intolerance, I guess you could say. They don't show that pattern at all. And here are the Europeans, again, a very similar pattern. So we were able to estimate the age of this mutation. We dated it to somewhere between, this is now the um, minus 1410C mutation, the one most common in East Africa. And we dated that to between 3,000 to 7,000 years. The two populations that had the oldest age estimate were these Cushitic speakers who were thought to come, have come into the region from Ethiopia within the past 5,000 years, and the Nilotic speakers who came from southern Sudan within the past few thousand years. Now, whichever group it arose in, it's clear that there was a lot of intermarriage between the two groups and that this uh, variant spread to high frequency in both. So you have this genetic adaptation that arises together with the um, cultural practice of cattle domestication. So this is a great example of gene culture coevolution. And in fact, what was really neat is when we look at the archaeological record, 
we actually estimated the age of the mutation uh, in Europe to be around 9,000 to 10,000 years. And it's thought that uh, cattle domestication arose in the Middle East or North Africa, somewhere right around that date. But it wasn't introduced south of the Sahara uh, until about 5,000 years ago. Again, really consistent with the date estimates. So here's a great example where we can combine archaeological and genetic data together. I'm just going to end by thanking uh, many, many people, international group of collaborators involved in this project, and a special thanks to the many Africans who contributed to this project. Thank you. My name is Ajit Barki, and as the co-director of UCSD Salk Carter, it's my great pleasure to make a few closing remarks to this wonderful symposium. I would obviously like to thank the chairs and all the speakers from a, for a truly intriguing and thought-provoking series of presentations. And, of course, special thanks to our major sponsors, Harold and Lila Mathers Charitable Foundation, and Jim Handelman, the executive director, and Annette Merle-Smith. This afternoon, we've been treated to a fascinating feast of current information on the origin of the human species and our remarkable biodiversity. So it said that truth is stranger than fiction. Who would have thought that all of us in this room, and in fact all of us on this planet, came from less than five or 10,000 individuals less than 100,000 years ago? So even while we celebrate the rich diversity of humans, I think we should, with Swante Pabo, realize that from the genomic perspective, we are all Africans, either living in Africa or in quite recent exile from Africa. <laughs> so in this regard, I cannot help but close with mention something that I came across last week, and that was a reminder about the upcoming U.S. Census. <laughs> Question number nine in the census form asked me to classify myself into this bewildering set of races. And uh, although I'm technically an Asian Indian, as you just heard from uh, Mike, um, that's really not a very good category. In fact, the part of India that I'm from has not even been tested. So um, my own ancestry probably involves ancient Dravidians, Indo-European invaders, immigrants from Syria, Chinese sailors, Arab traders, and who knows who else. So I feel that I must instead check the box uh, other. But then I have to make two choices. My first choice is my true ethnic identity, which is culturally westernized, anglicized, naturalized U.S. immigrant, Syrian Christian Malayali from Kerala in the south coast of West India. So I thought about this, and I think what I'm going to do instead, and I would encourage you to tell everyone to do this, let's, let's make, a, make a change here and just say human. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.